Hello, folks, and welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Podcast. Each week, I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your triathlon performance. Firstly, thank you so much to Jane Wiley, whose generous donation has covered the costs of this week's podcast. Jane, this episode is dedicated to you. In the four years since the podcast launched, we have managed to do so without adverts. I'd like to continue in this manner, but the costs of producing the weekly podcast are growing annually. So if you're interested in making a one-off or a regular donation to the podcast to help cover our costs, then in return, I will dedicate the episode to you and we can avoid the thorny issue of advertising. You can find a link in the show notes below or you can email beth at thetriathloncoach.com for further details. All right, on to this week's guest. So I'm joined by my friend Simon Butterworth. He's one of the oldest Ironman triathletes on the circuit. Recently, he won the 75 to 79 age group at Ironman Coeur d'Alene. He's raced in Kona at least a dozen times and in 2017 was a 70 to 74 age group world champion. To be quite frank, it's the athletes like Simon that inspire me to keep training daily. And after listening to this conversation, I hope you are similarly inspired. So let's crack on and hear from Simon. Welcome back to the show, Simon Butterworth. Hi, Simon Ward. How are you? I'm very well, my friend, all the way from Boulder. It's lovely to see you. Yeah, same here. You were in the process of preparing for Kona, weren't you? But you've, uh, you've, well, you've all, everybody that was expecting to go in October has had a bit of bad news today. Yeah, well, I, I got a, the heads up yesterday. Uh, I had planned a long ride yesterday. Uh, I'd actually planned what I just mentioned earlier, a long swim, bike and run yesterday. I bailed on the swim and I took off on the bike and I rode for just a bit over six hours, covered about um, oh, 106, 107 miles. Um, and uh, kept thinking, am I wasting my time today? <laughs> Got home and discovered, yes, I was. Is it, is it ever really wasted? I mean, it's in the bank, isn't it? And you'll be, it's a bit like a deposit in the bank and I'm, no doubt you'll be drawing on that deposit at some time in the future. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't, isn't, isn't wasted. You know, did I need to do six, six hours plus of training? No, uh, I could have waited, but uh, it was a good day apart from getting, I was actually thinking of you as I pulled into a coffee shop as it started to piss rain. And uh, I took off in the rain thinking it was going to clear. It didn't clear for 25 minutes. And I was riding in the rain thinking, well, this is what Simon Ward puts up with on a regular basis. <laughs> so I got, I, I can't complain. Uh, we haven't had too much rain recently, actually, although yesterday I did get caught in the rain completely by surprise. The um, I ride down to the pool in Leeds and it's a 45 minute ride on my on my gravel bike. It's about, about 11 or 12 miles, but it's it's about as quick as driving there these days. So I ride down, uh, I get a 45 minute session in the pool, but it's, it's quite quiet at the time I go and then I ride back again. So it's a good sort of two and a half hours, really, by the time I've um, by the time I've got back. And when I came out of the pool, I'd not prepared for it to be pouring down with rain. Um, so. Uh, fortunately, it was reasonably warm, and so and and there was a little bit of a headwind. So by the time I'd been going for a few miles, I was I was starting to get to a little sweaty. So it, it was actually quite pleasant. But that's the first time for a while I've been caught in the rain. Um, our so rain tends to be very cold out here because it's yeah. because of our altitude, and yeah. it really chills off the air a lot. Mm, yeah, but you don't you don't get rain that often, do you? It's quite dry in Boulder. No, very very. You know, you can usually work your way around that situation mm. so let, let's tell everybody why i've got you on the call simon you are well you've just qualified for uh, kona this year or whenever it's going to happen for you now and you yeah. qualified by winning your age group at ironman Coeur Lane, and that was the 75 to 79 age group of which you were, were not just the only finisher you were the only starter i believe 
Well, actually, there was one starter, and I don't know what happened to him, but he seems to have bailed out after he did the swim. Um, someone told me he might have run afoul of the r- rules in the swim. And if he did, my guess is he didn't run over the timing mat. It's a two-loop swim, and you had to, to come w- well up the beach and go around the timing mat, and maybe he cut it short. I, I don't know, but he never he never started the run. Mm. And, and he was he was a last minute drop in too, which right. surprised me. Um, so you've been doing Ironman for twenty years, best part twenty years. Twenty years this year. And you've been to Kona how many times so far? Fifteen. Okay. How many times have you won your age group? Once. Right. So you won your age group in twenty seventeen, didn't you? Which was the year that I did Kona as well. Yeah. So I, I, people who've heard me mention this story will now realise the person who I'm talking about, and I'll put some I'll put some video clips on so people can actually get a get a look at your stature and your face and and everything else. So listeners, when I when I say that, you know, when you're trying to qualify for Kona, in our minds we have this game of last man standing, and you think, well, I'm not fit enough in this age group, but if I can just keep going until I'm in the 70 plus age group. I'll be fit enough to win my age group there and then I'll qualify for Kona. Well, I was never fast enough to qualify for Kona, but I almost had a loyalty card for the number of Ironman races I had done and I was able to get a legacy spot as a result of completing 12 Ironman um, distance events. So I got my opportunity to race in Kona in 2017 and I was in the 50 to 54 category. So there I am about 11 or 12 miles into the run, just heading out of town. And past me comes my dear friend, Simon Butterworth, in the 70 to 74 category. And I didn't catch him. He was probably about, I think you were half, you were 12.25, I think, Simon, and I was 12.55. So that whole thing about if I can just hold on for another 20 years, I'll be able to qualify. Well, even at the age of 50, I wasn't, or 50 to 54, I wasn't fast enough to beat the guy in the category 20 years above me. So this is the man who I would have been chasing. So, um, yeah, it's not always that simple. So you are an inspiration to me and many others, Simon. And uh, I've no doubt that uh, Mike Riley told you as much when he had you on the stage. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> that was that was fun. One of the perks of getting old is you, if you're the oldest finisher in the race, uh, you get uh, interviewed by Mike Riley on the podium. Mm. Well, I think we have a, a copy of that interview, so we'll put that in the show notes for people to um, to listen to because you've got, you've got a couple of funny stories in there that made Mike laugh. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about how you got into triathlon. You were a late starter. You're seven. You're seventy four, seventy five now. I'm seven. Well, seventy four, seventy five in November. Okay, yeah. so um, starting in your early fifties is quite late. So what we what were you doing up to that point? Well, actually, I started triathlons in my mid forties, mm. but doing initially for the first three years, I just did one race, a sprint local sprint race on Long Island in New York, and then I started to get serious. ITU announced they were going to have the world championships in in uh, Perth, Australia, someplace I w- always wanted to visit. So I really got serious and got on Team USA and for the Olympic distance world championships in in '97, and did four years of that until I was uh, in my early fifties, and that's when I got going with Ironman. Basically, I hadn't even considered Ironman until I got into a situation where I was working at home and knew I would have the time to train. Hmm. So you've been doing Ironman races for 20 years. I suppose what I'm really interested in is um, you've been to Kona and achieved what most people want to do once. Certainly that was the thing for me. So how do you keep particularly when you've been a world champion, how do you maintain your enthusiasm as you get older? Because, you know, you must have seen a lot of your cohort group dropping by the wayside as the years have gone by, but particularly if you're the last one now, you know, or one or two that are actually on the start line. 
It's it's difficult. I mean, I I I I feel it gets more and more difficult every year. Uh, this this COVID certainly didn't help anything at all in that in that regard. Having said that, I did I did keep up my training right through last year with no no races on the on the immediate horizon. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 not easy, and I don't know that I have a real great solution or advice on it. I I enjoy the training. There's, there's you know I enjoy getting outside. Um, what's challenging is putting in the right kind of training so that you can qualify for Kona, and that's the hard part. I mean, I would I'd be quite happy to go out, ride my gravel bike a couple of hours two or three times a week, run two or three times a week, swim two or three times a week, but not at the same level, volume and, and intensity that I that I do. But, yeah, but, I still, but, but still, Simon, at 74, you're saying I'll be quite happy to ride my bike twice, two or three times a week, run two or three times a week, swim two or three times a week. So what, what you're saying is you'd be quite happy to do between six and nine sessions a week just, just to have fun and keep fit. Yeah. No disrespect to our, you know, other people in your age group, but most people at 74 will be patting themselves on the back if they get out and do a walk three times a week for a, for an hour or so. And yet here you are. I mean, clearly you're a superhuman because, you know, you've been a world champion, so you've stood on the very top of the podium. Um, but still, uh, your habits and your daily routines and your idea of keeping fit are way, way, way above everybody else's. So you still have to maintain the enthusiasm to just be able to do that, regardless of whether you're entered for a race or not. Yeah, I, I, that's true. But, you know, given given the level that I've been at, staying, staying, doing basically half the volume, but still getting out there on a regular basis is not a huge challenge for me. And, and you know, I've, I've talked to some of the friends who, who have stopped racing or at least stopped racing Ironman. And uh, they're more than, you know, they're, they're, I think they're the same. The only ones that are not out there anymore are the ones that got seriously injured or have run into some major medical problem that's, that's limiting what they can do but they still like to get out. I have, I have a good friend who's I had lunch, uh, dinner with just two nights ago. Um, he's eight, 80 years of age. He's still getting out, walking six, seven miles, two, two three times a week, riding 30, 40 miles. Uh, he's very, very frustrated. He's, he's injured. His, his bicep tendon is like a big lump at the, at, down by his elbow. And he basically has no swimming speed at all now. If if that hadn't happened, he was planning a comeback to go to Kona this year. Mm -hmm. I was hoping to be able to do it with him. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. Are you are you part of a training network of old guys that train, or do you train with younger guys, or do you train on your own? I tend to train on my own. I've I've had good friends here in 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 and around Boulder. Unfortunately, one of my best friends out here, who you know of, Barry Siff, um, moved moved to uh, Arizona seven or eight years ago. But I used to ride with him regularly. And one of the other guys I've coached in the past has gone into semi-retirement at the tender age of sixty-three. Mm. <laughs> A little bit young, in my opinion. But anyway, uh, I, do, I don't do a lot of training, though, with other – I tend to do a lot of it on my own. Yeah, which, again, um, you know, adds more to your enthusiasm, really, the fact that you don't have a group that you meet up with for some social interaction as well. It's It's very solitary. Well, I was just about to say it's not solitary when I'm running, which is one of the – tough things I'm going through at this point. I've, we've had a dog for the last uh, 11, 11 years. Her name is Rita. She developed a, she's developed a cancer in her behind her eye. Mm. Uh, when this, when this started to flare up and we got the diagnosis, I, I went back to figure out how many miles has Rita run with me over the last 11 years. And it's over 10,000 miles. Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, she she was just a wonderful running companion. She still can run. I ran 6K with her the other day um, with this horrible bulging eye uh, that she's got. But she's 12, so I can't take her out in hot weather anymore. She can't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. But I bet if we've still got her in when the snow hits this winter, she'll be ro- romping through the snow like a like a two-year-old. Well, I, I I do recall when we went out running when we stopped with you. Um, she was there at the in the morning, sort of turning around and waiting for us both, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> she was. She's a great dog. You 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 mentioned this idea that if you weren't racing, you'd you'd be doing two or three swim, bike, and run sessions a week, and then saying, but um, sort of alluding to the fact that that would still be below your normal training volume. What what is your normal weekly training routine? Let's say in the off season. And then when you start to prepare for an Ironman? Off-season probably ranges 10 to 11 hours a week. Um, Shorter sessions, but typically about the same number. Um, At least three of each sport uh, in some strength training. Uh, And then in the summer, the volume picks up and the intensity picks up when come springtime. And I'll, I peaked out last two years ago in 2019 uh, with a couple of weeks where I did 20 plus hours of training. That's becoming a real problem as, as I head into my middle 70s. I could do that on, you know, week after week with, with a break every three weeks as little as five or six years ago. Can't do that anymore. I, I need... If I do a 20 plus hour week, I'll need a two or three days of recovery and 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 probably two or three more days of relatively easy training. I, sh- I should imagine there's people listening to that. They're probably nodding with you and they're in their 30s and 40s. <laughs> yeah, last time I stopped with you and then when I saw you in Kona, maybe a year, well, maybe it was 2019 was the last time we would have um, had dinner in Kona. You were saying to me, because that was that would have been the day after the race. You were saying to me, "I'd like to pick your brains on strength training, Simon." Because I think I need, I might need to add that to my repertoire for the winter. You'd have been seventy-two at the time, so that's the other thing I admire about your enthusiasm is that um, you, you you're still you're still not resting on your laurels. You're still willing to try new things. Um, in your home, there you were experimenting with carbon fiber fabrication for little bits and pieces for your diamond bike. Um, yeah, I just find that whole sort of enthusiasm thing so inspiring that you have. You, you, you're still looking for new things. Yeah, uh, you know, I've I realized a long time ago, prob- probably as long as I've been doing Ironman events, that as you get older, the smart thing to do is not necessarily try and be faster because you can't, but try and train smarter, try and improve your technique. Good example is uh, I've I recently started working with a swim coach up in Fort Collins who I've known about for a long time and happened to run into. That's where I'm, I'm taking our dog up to a, one of the top vet schools in the country in Fort Collins. And I took the opportunity to have a couple of swim swim sessions with him. And uh, he has found something in my swim stroke that that really kind of has blown my mind. I'm better off swimming, breathing to the opposite side to where I've been breathing for the last 30 years. Mm. I typically breathe to the right. He says, my stroke is much smoother and looks more efficient when I breathe to the left. It's going to take me a little while to get used to that. I haven't haven't really mastered the, the being comfortable at it. But I did most of my 2,000-meter workout this morning, breathing to the left. Mm. And, it, and I can feel the difference. I can, yes. see, I can even see the difference. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered about that myself. I, I breathe bilaterally, and breathing to the right feels comfortable. But if I'm going hard, I will naturally go to the left. And it feels alien in the same way you were describing there, to breathe to my right only breathing to the right. Um, one thing I have noticed is that I feel like my right arm is stronger 
and I get a better catch. But when I do single arm um, on, on the uncoordinated swim smooth drill, it takes me two strokes less to get through 25 metres than it than it does with my right arm, even though it feels like my right arm's catching better. So clearly I'm doing something different when I stroke with the left arm and breathe to the right. And I've wondered myself whether breathing to the right might actually be a more efficient way of swimming. But it, it feels alien to be doing that for several hundred metres in a row. So I've just not tried. Yeah, the big, the, 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 the visualisation of of my problem is when I breathe to the right, I can see my elbow passing my face. My face is still out of the water as my elbow comes past my face. Whereas when I breathe to the left, I don't see it. Oh yeah. And and, uh, this is what Eric, Eric Nielsen was, was trying to correct when he's, when I started doing some bilateral breathing and he said, wait a minute, swim 25 yards, just breathing to your left. And, and he runs around the pool and says to me, you won't, you won't believe how much better that looks. So you, it's like you've got delayed breathing pattern on the right then. So if your head's still up, so there must be, you must be breathing out later um, yep. and then trying to delay the breathing and while you're recovering with the arm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not getting the lats engaged on the left side, right? When, when I do that, so I'm losing I'm losing some, you know, the use of muscles in in the swim. Mm. But it's that sort of thing that makes the sport fascinating for me. The same thing with running, you know. I I spent two or three years uh, with Bobby McGee going to his weekly run clinics, and learned a ton of stuff about running from him. Uh, and eventually um, ran a, I think it was a 406 marathon in Kona. And when I was uh, 70, which put me on the podium for the first time. Sorry, no, when I was 65. When I was 65, it put me on the podium for the first time. Yeah, Uh, I mean... You've, you've definitely got a, a decent menu of coaches to pick from in Boulder, haven't you? You've, you've mentioned Bobby McGee and the swim coach here. I mean, there's there's plenty to go at. And, and I, I guess you've uh, you, you've had consultations with quite a few of those over the years, um, either on a commercial basis or just as friends that you might bump into from time to time. And not to mention that uh, the group, the coaching group that I'm part of, D3 Multisport. Yeah. I've, I've I've not engaged any of them on any regular basis, but I've sure in hell learned a lot listening to them talk. We have monthly monthly coaches meetings, and uh, um, obviously to help the coaching side, but it it helps me as well. Well, we've we've had Mike Ritchie as a guest on. Uh, I've got a lot of time for Mike. He's a great coach, but he's got a good team as well, including yourself. Yeah, yeah, he does. It's- um, so you you talked about the fact that you've come to notice that your recovery is not as quick doing those big weeks. What other things have you noticed uh, about your body, your mindset, um, as you uh, and anything else as you've got older? And are these things that you've noticed season on season, or do you just sort of four or five years later think actually, you know, a few years ago this never used to happen? Do they, do they come on slowly or can people expect to notice them very quickly? Sometimes they come on quickly, but for the most part, they sneak up on you slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the big, big challenge that I've got this year, and it really manifested itself in the, in the national USA national championships th- two weeks ago is, is just not having any racing experience for the best part of 18 months. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized that I had gotten mentally stale. Uh, and and the, the numbers really spoke to it. On Saturday, they had the Olympic race. Um, I, I went through, I was second in the race. I went through transition almost a minute and a half slower than the guy who won. He caught me half a mile from the finish and finished 32 seconds in front of me. Sunday, we did the sprint race, exactly the same course, just 
so out and back. Transition was exactly the same. I went through transition 90 seconds faster, both the two of them combined. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was all of a sudden now I was aware that, gee, I I I can't dawdle around and screw around in transition. I really have to focus. Uh, and you know that that's what I, I lost in a year. And I suspect that that's happening to some degree every year. Mm-hmm. Because of the big gap in competition, it was much more obvious this time around. Okay. Um, so that, that's a, a very interesting racing change you've noticed. What other things have you noticed over the years then about, about what you can do in your training or you know, your recovery? These long ride, these long swim, bike, run workouts that I mentioned that definitely can't recover, don't recover from those anywhere close to as fast as I did even four years ago. Mm. Um, I need at least at least two solid days of very light work. Um, and I, I'm, I'm wondering also whether it makes sense to do those kind of workouts anymore. I mean, I've got I've got the endurance. Uh, I, sh- I should probably f- be focusing on trying to maintain my speed rather mm-hmm. than and strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, than, I guess it's like once you, once you know that it hurts to hit yourself on the hand with a hammer, how many more times do you need to do it to remind yourself? You know, Joe Friel talks in his in his book Fast After Fifty that maintaining that intensity is is or I mean, back up you lose the intensity as you get older rather than the endurance and so if you want to stay stay good at the sport you've got to do your best to minimize the loss of 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 speed and 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 strength Mm. i i think that's counterintuitive for a lot of people because particularly with running most would consider that the fast explosive stuff is where they're more likely to get injured whereas the steadier um, state work that doesn't have any fast accelerations they're less likely to get injured so they veer towards that because it's a safe route to go but of course um they're probably still getting the volume in but as you say the power's dropping i mean you we as humans lose muscle mass naturally anyway so that's another thing we could perhaps talk about is the strength training and um thing but we lose those fast twitch fibers so we have to nurture those more um, so whilst it is counterintuitive, just about every coach that, that's worth their salt says, as you get older, you need to do more. Well, you need to maintain the high intensity work. Yeah, well, Joe, Joe certainly cautions, has plenty of caution in his book about, you know, the risks of injury. Mm. And uh, one, of, one of the reasons that I'm massaging my legs with my complex device at the moment is that's exactly what I did at nationals. You know, I, I had a bone in my teeth when I did the sprint race on Sunday and uh, I won that one, but I am now paying for it. I've got a pretty sore Achilles tendon. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, no running at the moment. Mm. Well, clearly your legs aren't sore enough to stop you from doing a six hour ride though. No, no. And then that's another little experiment I took on the, on the year off, uh, I moved my cleats to the midfoot position. So it took all the, well, not all, but a good bit of the stress off the calf muscles by doing so. And that's why I could ride yesterday. Mm. I don't think I could have done that if I'd had them in the normal position. So you, I mean, that's, that's something else that I've seen Joe advocating, maybe not in his book, but he's certainly written blog posts about setting your cleats back, but you, you don't find many shoes that have those cleat positions built in, do they? So is, there's a bit of engineering work you need to do to uh, drill out That's some new positions. Where my carbon fiber skills came came in very handy. Mm. How far uh, how far back from the standard uh, fixing points do you have to move the cleats then? Oh, uh, they're they're you know literally mid foot, um, un- under the arch of your foot, G- a good uh, inch at least a good inch back. So there must be some downsides to that. How does that affect you when you have to do some climbing where it involves standing up? Well, yesterday it was kind of interesting. I, I the, the general commentary on this is that 
it does reduce your ability to climb effectively. And when I was thinking about doing this was the last time you were in Boulder for the for the seminar. And one of the other participants talked to me about this. And she said that it doesn't work well for sprinters at all. But for endurance athletes in particular, it's it's not for everybody, but it's it works. And there's a there's an Australian sports scientist and a Swiss who are huge advocates of it. Mm. The Swiss guy actually claims that uh, Daniela Reef at one point was riding with midfoot cleats. Mm-hmm. Does it um, has it uh, has it made any noticeable difference in a positive or negative way to your running then? I think I think it has in that it, it's clearly not stressing the, the calf muscle to the degree that it, it did. Mm. And my run, even though it resulted in a, an injury in the sprint race, was the fastest 5K I've run in three years. Yes. It's, it's pretty good news at 65, uh, 75. It, it, it feels like if you're on your toes more, you're stressing the soleus muscles. And yeah. so if you don't stress those, then they'll have a little bit more energy and a little bit more rebound for the run. And of course, that's the reason why we end up in the Ironman shuffle, isn't it? It's because those soleus muscles are so fatigued from the bike that after a certain number of miles on the run, they just stop working. And then you just can't, you can't use the, the elastic recoil of the Achilles tendon and you, you're just basically shuffling. Yeah, yeah. I had hoped to sort of really give it a good test at Coeur d'Alene, but the temperatures were so ridiculously high that, and, and I didn't need to have a particularly fast race to qualify for Kona. So I took the uh, cautious route and did a hell of a lot of walking mm-hmm. and, and resulting in the longest, my longest marathon on record. <laughs> so, um, You've you've changed your cleat position. Have you started doing any more um, interval work then, or have you just maintained it? And and what subtle ways have you changed that interval work? Particularly with, it seems to me that where most people have problems as you get older is on the run rather than the swim and the bike. Have you noticed that? Yeah, yeah, and, and so, certainly the, the running is what has has slowed the most mm-hmm. you know, over the last five or six years. Um, I've been doing interval work for quite a long time, uh, and that hasn't hasn't changed super radically. One of one of the things though, that I am doing is very short interval running these days, but trying to maintain a really good pace when I do it. Mm-hmm. Even, even when I race in, in in when I race in an Ironman, I'm not running for more than a minute at a time. Maybe if there's a long downhill, I'll run for two minutes mm-hmm. and then I'll walk for 15 to 20 seconds. Yes. I remember when, when I came to Boulder, you were, you'd started experimenting with that a little bit, hadn't you? So you, you found that to be successful because a few people have asked me about the run walk method and I point them towards Jeff Galloway's book. Um, he's a big advocate up here, obviously, and claims that, you know, people need not feel, penalized by walking a little bit because they can run faster so have you um have you had any interaction with jeff galloway at all about that method of training no but i've read his book and i've read a number of articles that he's written uh and i was most impressed when he was turned 70 he qualified for boston doing essentially what i'm i'm doing Mm -hmm. uh running for less less than a minute and walking for 20 seconds or so Mm -hmm. uh at that at 70, the Boston qualifying time, the official qualifying time was something like 4.10. Because of the competition, it you had to be well under that. So I'm guessing you he was comfortably under four hours at 70 years of age. That's pretty impressive testament for, for his method. Do you do that in all of your training now, then run walk, or do you actually go out and do a long run, as in just run continuously? No, I do. I do the run walk all the time, almost all the time. When I was getting ready for nationals, I knew I wasn't going to, I couldn't afford to walk quite as much. And the run distances were obviously a lot less. So I started practicing running for a mile uh, and walking for 20 seconds, basically Mm -hmm. walking through aid stations. 
Mm-hmm. But so. when I'm training exclusively for an Ironman, I'll I'll run walk even on the sh- my shortest runs because yeah. it it takes quite a while to get used to being able to go from a run to from a walk to a run efficiently. Mm-hmm. You know, people people I've suggested this to many over the years is oh I I have a te- you know if I start walking I feel terrible when I start running again. It's it comes down to practice. And when you're walking, do you do you walk easily because you've been running fast? Do you then walk easily to give yourself recovery, or do you continue to try and um, maintain a brisk pace so that you don't lose as much on the time? Brisk pace. Bobby McGee's recommendation on that was to to walk with a, as fast a cadence as you can manage. That may not necessarily be the fastest speed that you could walk at if you stretched your legs out. And and he also advocated, you know, basically walking like a speed walker walks. But the game the game is not so much to recover. That's part of it. But the big thing is recruiting the muscles differently. So you give the muscles that are the running muscles a little change of effort, and just that little bit allows you to keep going on a consistent basis for twenty six miles. Okay. Now, we talked about strength training a few moments ago. So did you introduce strength training and, and how, how big have you gone on the, uh, the gym work? I, I, I'm still struggling with strength training. I mean, as I mentioned before, I love going outside. So if there's any, you know, if, if it's a nice day uh, and I'm out on my bike and I'm feeling good, I, I might stretch another half an hour and then say, oh, I'm too tired to do go down to the basement and do strength exercises. Mm. But Mike Ritchie pointed, uh, directed me to a coach in Boulder who I've started to work with. And uh, he's not, he's not putting me into strength training so much, but just simple mobility exercises to maintain the flexibility in my body. And, and I think he's, he's right on with, with that notion we will get to some strength training, but the priority now is is just to actually it's just one one part of my body, the thoracic spine, get some more mobility in that, mm-hmm. and then we'll proceed from there. Is is that something you've noticed with age as well that you've you've lost mobility in around in and around certain joints? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Where where, where, partic- where particularly? Well, what was embarrassing when he, he did a, a movement assessment of me when we first met, I used to be able to put both palms flat on the floor. I haven't done a, done a stretch like that in years. Well, with, could, um, you mean from a standing point, like straight, uh, just touching your toes? I could put my hands almost flat on the floor. Yeah. I couldn't barely get my fingers to touch the floor the other day when, when I did this. And, and other other things. What what has amazed me is though my shoulder mobility seems to have remained pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I can still do the classic stretches for a swimmer where you put your arm on a wall and 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 sort of bend your arm behind your back. That's that's still still pretty good. But it's very it's not symmetrical. Uh, one side is a lot worse than the other. So that's work on that thoracic spine tightness. As where has that come from? Do you think? Well, part of it's coming from old age and arthritis. Okay, uh, I've got you know clear uh, you know impingement of of uh, arthritic growth on on my on my spine, mm. uh, and I've got I've got arthritis in my knees. So yeah, old age sucks. <laughs> but you're doing your best to uh, you're doing your best to outrun it, aren't you? Yeah, get, except getting on podiums <laughs> <laughs> and getting the chance to talk to Mike Riley. Yeah, yeah. So, um, have you made any changes to your nutrition? I know that when I was there, you had little supplements that you were taking and some little pills and potions that you you took each day. Um, can you go through some of your nutrition practices um, that you currently follow? And maybe tell us how those have changed over the last few years as you try to counter the sort of natural aging process. 
Well, the radical change is that I'm 90 95% vegan these days. Oh, really? Okay. And that, ha- that happened uh, during, you know, the height as COVID became a big thing. And it was, it was sparked in part by uh, my cardiologist who tells me that I've got some brewing problems with the old ticker as well. Um, blockage is not critical yet in a couple of arteries, but it's, it's more than it needs, should be. Um, he, he finally, I went to see a new, new cardiologist two years ago now, uh, one, of, one of the top guys in Boulder and in the country. And he sold me on also starting to take a statin. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it has not had, doesn't seem to have had any effect on my athletic ability. Okay. But he also encouraged me to read uh, a, a couple of books. Um, and now I'm trying to remember and see if I can see the book on the bookshelf. Um, Anyway, it's written, written, the book was written by the son of one of the big advocates of, of um, vet, vegetarian diets. And the guy is a former professional triathlete, now a fireman, and he's written Forks Over Knives, was the name of the book. Oh, um, yeah. Is, was there a documentary about that as well? Yes, and I saw that as well. He's, I'm thinking of the guy now. Oh, I can't. I can't think of his name. Oh, near me, I could look it up. I've got his book on on Kindle. I'll, uh, I'll 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 go onto the Google while you're chatting, Simon. So you read you read that book? Yeah, and uh, you know it, it pretty much sold me that on the idea that I that I didn't have to worry about not getting enough protein because I cut out meats. Uh, I still I'm not a hundred percent vegan. I'm still eating fish. Uh, and eggs, um, but uh, I have, you know, probably had three or four red meat meals in the last six months, which I used to have on a regular, ba- weekly basis. Looks like the name of that author is Del Shroof. That be right? Mm, no, that doesn't no. sound. Familiar. No. Okay. Well, we'll we'll look it up. Um, no. So did your cardiologist suggest to you that there was a direct link between eating meat and um, blockage of those arteries? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm uh, interesting because I'm just reading the, uh, the carnivore diet by Sean Baker and he's arguing that actually eating meat and heart problems aren't directly linked. And there's probably other, there's probably other lifestyle issues for a lot of people that are involved as well. So you can't directly attribute it to meat. <laughs> so um, it's, it's the problem with all of these dietary philosophies is that there doesn't seem to be any consensus between the experts in the world other than eat less sugar and eat less processed food. I think everybody seems to agree on those two. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had got to the point where I was really good at, at eating natural food. I shied away from, processed food um, 25 plus years ago, Mm. but didn't stop me from developing, uh, you know, plaque in my, in my arteries. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So what else then? So you, you become vegan. Any, any other little things that you've, you've started doing or not doing? No, other than that, no, no change in the, in, in my supplement thing i did i did do have one of the uh um, my brain definitely doesn't work as well as it used to um one of these big um blood workups mm-hmm. uh, where where they're they're not just looking at your blood work from the point of view of the classic western medical world but they're using some of their own proprietary analysis and uh, that kind of supported the notion that I should be, you know, staying on my vegan diet. And, and they said, in general, I was in, in good, good health for, for what I'm doing uh-huh. and that I really shouldn't change too much. I'd already been on the vegan diet for a year when I did this blood work. Uh-huh. 
Well, there's quite a few. There's quite a few vegan athletes, isn't there? Um, Rich Roll is probably the most famous um, yeah. of those. Um, he's a big advocate for the vegan vegan lifestyle. Um, yeah, one of our coaches in D three, um, Jim Halberg, was on the on the podium in nationals eight times, and he's vegan. He mm. won his won his age age group in both in the in the Olympic was second in the in the uh, um, uh, sprint had the fastest bike split in the Olympic. I mean, he he, he just kept walking up there and collecting stuff. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also, I don't know if you've read Eat and Run by Scott Jurek, and in, in that book, I mean, Scott wasn't a triathlete, he was an ultra runner, but at one point he was the most dominant ultra runner in the world, and he was winning all of the big races like the Western States and Leadville. And during the course of the book, he sort of moves more and more towards a vegan lifestyle, and he's saying, you know, I was just recovering. I'd do a hard run. There'd be a lot of downhill running. Yeah, I had no inflammation or soreness and my legs were almost recovered the next the next day. Um, interesting that as as his form starts to dip later on, you can see that the harmony in his life is disturbed as well because he, he has a relationship breakup with his girlfriend and, you know, he's not he's moving around from place to place to live. So um, obviously harmony in your life is, is also um, part of the, the the puzzle, isn't it, to uh, to those good performances not just about what you eat and what training you do that's that's for sure and and this situation with our my my running partner has certainly not been easy mm. uh, the notion one of the the reasons i'm not too upset at, at the lack of a race in october is it gives me three week three more weeks to be with our dog mm. uh, that I doubt she's going to be around come February. Uh, well, uh, no doubt our dog-loving listeners will be sending you lots of good wishes, Simon, for that one. Yeah. Um, vegan diets and people who turn to eating uh, a vegan diet often have problems initially and maybe even the long term about sourcing adequate quantities of protein. And one of the other recommendations that most nutritionists make and most coaches who are advising athletes over 50 is to be really focused on keeping the quality and quantity of your, your protein up, even maybe increasing the quantity of protein to try and counter the um, degradation of, of muscle mass. So um, where do you get most of your protein from? Have you found it a challenge being on a vegan diet and do you, and, and have you done something to actually up the levels of protein or are you, are you taking supplements to do that? Oh, well, I'm, 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 and this may not be all that good from the from the heart problem point of view. I certainly get a lot of protein from things like peanut butter, um, but tofu has been in the diet. Uh, um, I haven't gotten super obsessed with, and certainly haven't tried to boost my protein levels. From, from my the biggest challenge I really do have though with the diet is I'm not I'm not a good chef, <laughs> right? And and sorting sorting that out has been been a challenge. Yeah, it seems we um, my physio Louisa, who I talk about a lot on the podcast, and uh, Jack, my ex business partner, and his partner Kirsten, they they actually um, came and did a podcast with me to talk about the vegan lifestyle and vegan eating and. It was much more than just the food. It was that they've got a much more ecological, environmental outlook as well in terms of um, the the clothes they choose to wear, you know, recycling and all of the other stuff. So it's it's not just about the sourcing of their food. Uh, but one of the things that they were really keen to emphasise is if somebody was considering moving from, um, well, moving towards a plant based diet, away from eating meat and fish, was to research the sources of protein that are available um, because it, it is much harder. It's much harder to source them. You need to know what shops to go to to get the right sources. And it's, it's no good saying I'm going to be a vegan because I'm going to be healthier and then, and then eating vegan processed fruit because that's still vegan shit, isn't it? And um, it's not going to do you any good. Um, it's like vegan McNuggets. Um, you know, they're still, they're still mass produced in a factory. So, and Louisa was also at pains to talk about, experimenting with 
cooking so that's what you've just mentioned there and being adventurous and and sort of finding different food sources to uh, to cook and eat yeah i i hadn't thought of it but my nut volume of nuts in general has gone up yeah um, and it is you know to 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 keep me in a little bit in what i've been used to i'm i'm adding uh, walnuts and almonds to my cereals when mm. i have cereals. i'm back to eating porridge which i didn't realize had a f- fair amount of protein in it well you do you use chia seeds as well because chia's got a, a reasonably good uh, quantity of protein and quinoa as well is also a good source of protein and carbohydrates not I'm not mad about those two food products at least twice. and that and that doesn't help either does it if you're also um two two of the sources that give you good protein and carbohydrates things that you aren't really comfortable with either and if i spent a spend a ton of money and fix my teeth properly i wouldn't i would might want to eat them but it gets the chia seeds get stuck <laughs> in my teeth <laughs> yeah i hear you on that one yes for sure i wake up um, after having sprinkled cheer on my fruit and yogurt, uh, the next morning, once they've um, they've absorbed a bit of water, they're all over the place, aren't they, in your mouth? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, you were telling um, the listeners there that you are currently sitting on your chair with your complex um, leg massager. Is that is that, uh, is that a boot you're wearing or just little pads that you apply to the muscles? Little electrodes, uh, show you what they look like. So for the listeners, Simon's going to uh, show something now. So I maybe have to cut this bit of the video out and make it available. A little uh, electrodes. You know, if, if you've ever had e-stim with a, with a physio, that's, yeah. that's what these are. This is one kind. It's, oh, yeah. Okay. So what what um, what system are you using then, Simon? The Compex? Compex is the brand name of the of the uh, the device. This, this fellow. Yeah, and which and which version are you using then? Uh, this at the time I bought this, it was their top of the product line. Um, I discovered I it's in a European company. Yeah, does it does that one have a does that one have a name or a serial number or something? Get my glasses out on this Sport Elite. Okay. EU two. Okay. Well, well, what I'll do is I'll make it. I'll put a link on the show notes and then. If anybody's interested in having a look at it, it's and I guess that you, you've probably tried Norma Tech boots in the past, haven't you? When they've been on, on offer at um, races to to use as a as a uh, test. Tried, tried they're they're uh, uh, they're a wee bit too pricey for my taste, but mm. I have bought one of their um, uh, gun massages, yeah, which which uh, I discovered works wonders on my tight back. Um, so I have one of one of those. I got that just just recently. So that's like the little Theragun thing that everybody's using yeah. these days. Yeah, Hypervolt is the name of the, the brand name. Sorry, Hyperice. Sorry, Hyperice. Hyperice. Okay. Any other little tactics that you use to help your recovery, Simon? Do you uh, do you have a chili pad chili pad under your bed there? Um, are you using blackout blinds or anything? I do try and keep my room as dark as possible these days, for sure. After reading a lot of stuff about about sleep, uh, we've gotten, thanks to COVID, I think largely, we've got into a really good routine of going to bed at pretty much the same time every night. Yeah, uh, with a few a few excursions uh, because there's some movie or something i decide i want to watch and it's going to run too long and i can't can't turn the damn thing off <laughs> but uh for the most part i'm in i'm in bed at nine and up at somewhere around six o'clock you've, you've not invested in an aura ring or a whoop to track your sleep patterns or anything i've got it i've got a, an app on my phone i don't know that it's really that effective the, an aura ring or would probably be more useful because the problem with my app is it also picks up my wife's breathing. So really the information I'm getting is, is pretty much mm. useless. The, my, my other problem is that a lot of devices uh, don't work because of my low heart rate. Right. Okay. And I have, I have one of these um, 
cardia devices to detect atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. And unless my unless I've been exercising or moving around, my and my heart beats below fifty, it doesn't work. Right. Okay. So, so I'm, I don't know that any of those things would work well for me, uh, sleep wise. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, um, so do you say that your heart rate is naturally low then and that device keeps it up or it, it, it will only work if it's below a certain heartbeat? The, 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 scent, the measuring device won't work effectively if your heart rate's below 50. Oh, okay. Well, I, I have a resting heart rate of around 38 to 40 and the whoop seems to work quite well on that. Um, Does it? Doesn't miss any of that, yeah. Well, I've got, I've got secondary thing going on with my heart too as I miss beats. Part of the reason sometimes my heart rate's low is that I've I go through three or four seconds of mm. where nothing happens, and that ah. that's that's part of the heart condition that this new cardiologist uh, um, identified. Mm. So we we've, we've covered changes to your lifestyle your training routine, your nutrition, your sort of recovery practices. What about your approach to racing? Has, have you noticed that that's changed at all um, with, with aging? Well, apart from not being able to go as fast in uh, having to plan for a longer bike and a longer run, I wouldn't say it's changed that much. Um, I've been pretty much consistent with the with the fueling that I've been doing for the last seven or eight years. Um, I got, I discovered scratch, the scratch uh, hydration sports drink, Mm. I think about six, seven years ago. Then bought Alan Lim's book on making your own food for a race. And I've been doing that ever since. Is, and, is that the Feed Zone Portables? Feed Zone Portables book? Uh, something in portables, yeah. Yeah, it's got all the little little um, squares with, uh, wrapped up in aluminium foil on the front. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I use I use uh, plastic um, little small plastic Ziploc bags. They're basically bags used by jewelers, um, and uh, I find that a little better than the. Uh, um, wrapping it up in a, in essentially a piece of paper, because sometimes when I make when I make my rice cakes, which is what I eat, I over, I'll either un, I'll tip I'll overcook them and then they cook on my back. So by the time I get to start eating them, they're getting more like rice pudding. Yeah, <laughs> and and I can just squeeze them out of the plastic bags, seal okay. them up, and put it back in my pocket. So when you when you're making those um, rice balls, which, which are the ones that you favour most? Well, I, having gone vegan, I've got a pro- little bit of a problem, but I I, I still throw bacon bits in there. I, I basically, <laughs> I'm making a de- what Alan calls a Denver omelet. Okay. Uh, eggs, bacon, onions, red peppers, green peppers. Uh, and some spicing, right? So you must pref- you're preferring the sav- savory one then? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I started um, experimenting with uh, scooping out um, the stone out of an avocado and then lining and then lining that with bacon, and then putting the egg on top of it and then putting it in the oven to bake for um, twenty minutes until the egg was sort of like a hard boiled egg in constituency, and those are fabulous. Whoa! You're going to get. I'm. I'm going to try that because not, not not much not much carbohydrate in there, but a lot of lots of fat, a lot of protein. Mm-hmm. One of the things I do something similar is I'll take a date. Uh, yes. get, get the stone out and put peanut butter in the middle. Yeah. That that really that that goes well with my savory stuff because it sort of almost like I'm having dessert. I I learned. I learned 20 years ago that spending 11, 12 hours doing nothing but drink, drinking uh, 
Gatorade and eating energy bars is just about the worst thing you can do for mm-hmm. your mental well-being. Forget about whether it works physiologically. But I mean, I didn't. I'd, I'd finish an iron man back in my early days and not want to go near Gatorade for six months. Yeah, I, I've been there as well. Um, but interestingly. We were talking before we started this recording about um, you, you were interested in experimenting with the Super Sapiens um, system they've just brought out to provide constant glucose monitoring. Um, I'm currently using the Dexcom G6 version, which has been quite interesting. But the the, it, the most interesting experiments that you can do are ones where you deliberately go out of your way to eat certain foods. So I, I bought four a bag of four big chocolate cookies the other day. I mean, I would normally eat them, but now I can do it under the auspices of it's an experiment. Um, Interestingly, my blood sugar didn't spike as much as I thought it would, but it would be interesting to see what would happen if you had two or three of those dates with peanut butter because um, the dates traditionally, you can you can almost feel the sugar as you digest them, but mixed with protein, that might have a, um, a slightly neutralizing effect on your blood sugar response. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I mentioned to you before, my experiment with pure glucose is taking glucose tablets to uh, uh, mitigate the onset of mental fatigue in in an Ironman. And that I can say without a doubt makes a difference. Hmm. As I described to you, I was, I I had just finished and and the beauty of the beauty of glucose tablets, these are the tablets that diabetics use, mm-hmm. is you don't have to eat them. You just let them dissolve in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not only not only do you get some some sugar benefit and, and carbs, you're you're not upsetting your you can't upset your stomach with this. Anyway, I, I as I was getting close to the energy lab road five or six years ago, I tried one of these for the first time and realized running down the energy lab road that the sun, as I started down the hill, I didn't, I wasn't focused on the sun at all. It wasn't bothering me. It was getting to the point where it was close to the horizon. But about halfway down, all of a sudden, I started to feel like it was blazing in my face. And I realized I'd just woken up my brain. My brain had been half asleep. Mm. And taking glucose tablets about halfway through the marathon ever since. And I've also on one occasion been, a- been able to survive a-, a bout of gastric upset by just simply taking those tablets for two or three hours when I, I just couldn't put anything else down. Yeah, I found that. Just just sipping Coca-Cola usually does that. A little bit of caffeine, plenty of sugar. And you have to put that in your stomach with the beauty of the the the, mm-hmm. um, the glucose tablets as you just let them absorb in your mouth. Well, I mean, there is there was some research by Asker Jukendrup about if you took a, took a mouthful of carbohydrate drink, but were able to just swill it round and spit it out, you would still get some sort of response to that probably because it's absorbed straight in through the um through the the receptors in the mouth and it goes straight to the brain and of course the brain functions best when it's it's got glucose as a supply doesn't it so that'll be why you're responding to those stimuluses yeah and that was one of my faster may have been my actually my fastest uh marathon that year in kona It'd be interesting to know what would happen if you tried a bit of Kendall mint cake, because that's that's almost pure sugar as well. Yeah, but is it the right kind of sugar? No, probably not. No. Yeah, because Bobby McGee was the guy who put me onto this, and and it, he says glucose is the only thing the brain can use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've, I mean it, it could probably break down some of the other sugars into glucose, but of course that requires a digestion process, doesn't it? So that just takes a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Well, Simon, it's been fabulous to catch up with you. I'm sorry that you're not going to get a chance to fulfil all of that fitness you've currently got in Conan this year. Um, well, maybe maybe February, but uh, I'm not holding my breath on that. And if you if you race in February, although there's there's no guarantee. I mean, uh, again, as we discussed, we, we've seen that COVID tends to um, prosper during the winter months. 
Um, so there's no guarantee that the islands of Hawaii are going to be uh, clear of COVID then. So um, it'll be October next year. But if you did race in February, would you would you uh, would you try and do double double up in the year and go back again? Maybe and maybe not. <laughs> it would depend what happens in February. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot to ask of a body at, at any age, isn't it, to do three iron distance races in one year? Although I guess if you won your age group, would you automatically get a uh, well, that's, that's, why, that's where I was hesitating. Yeah. <laughs> if I win my age group in February, I'd probably go back in October. Mm. If I don't, I probably wouldn't. Well, as I say, it's uh, it's been fabulous to catch up with you, Simon, albeit on uh, camera and via Zoom. I, I wish that we were um, able to sit in Lava Java and have a coffee or a, 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 yeah, a, a cocktail watching the sunset, but it's not going to be this year. But next year maybe but but for now thank you so much for being on on the podcast i really enjoyed catching up okay thank you for having me simon. No, you, you, you're most welcome anytime simon okay take care now and best bye. to ingrid and rita thank you bye thank you to simon for joining me on the high performance human podcast there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the notes below If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the High Performance Human podcast on iTunes and get new episodes as they become available. Oh, and while you're there, please don't forget to leave a rating and review. Okay, that's it for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.